Father, we thank you for the joy of the Lord that fills our souls. Often, Lord, we may not feel very excited emotionally. We may feel tired physically. And yet, deep inside, we have that uh, desire to go on because of the joy, the contentment that you put there. And Lord, I pray that whenever that joy seems to wane, that we will seek you in a new and special way, that you might strengthen us in our commitment and our understanding of what it is you have called us to do and what our purpose is here in this life. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Father, as we think of the trials and tribulations through which so many of your people have gone, we are grateful to share with them in prayer and in encouragement whenever there is opportunity for us to be a blessing. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, the ministry of those who have gone forth from this very church to different parts of the world and, and even here in, in this country. And for the ministry you've given to each one of us, because we are witnesses, even as the scripture teaches, in the daily walk that we have with you. Father, as we study together from your word today, we trust you to enlighten our minds, to help us to uh, live according to the word as we read it, to not look upon it as ancient history, but as modern truth. Lord, I ask that throughout our Sunday school this morning, you will be present in every class. Grant to the to the children, attentiveness, uh, Lord, to the teacher's wisdom. And we'll thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to Exodus chapter 2, I'd like to read beginning at verse 16. Exodus 2, 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. What is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We'll stop there for a moment. Moses, as we remember from last week, had slain an Egyptian taskmaster. In an expression of compassion, ill-guided by rage, he had seen this taskmaster whipping one of his people with whom he was becoming more and more associated in his heart. And so he slew the man, buried him in the sand. And we noted that although no one witnessed this, apparently, except the Hebrew who was being beaten, and possibly other Hebrews, we don't know, but the word got to the Egyptians and ultimately to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh became desirous of disposing of Moses. And I pointed out last week that Pharaoh probably already had his concern about Moses to begin with, knowing his ancestry and knowing that he was of the Hebrews himself. 
and probably noticing that he had been showing considerable concern about the Hebrews in recent months or years. We don't know. The time frame isn't given here. Uh, Pharaoh became suspicious. And so when this happened, his suspicions were confirmed, and he sent out an order that Moses be arrested that he might answer for his crime. Now, under normal circumstances, a royal prince, someone who may have even, as Josephus said, been heir to the throne of Egypt, would not even have been questioned for his action. But because of Moses' ancestry, it was thought that this was the beginning of a possible insurrection. And so Moses had a price on his head. So Moses fled. How did Moses learn of the fact that there was a, quote, price on his head? Well, as I mentioned last time, it's very possible that his, his adoptive mother, the Egyptian princess, uh, sent word to Moses because she had love for him, apparently. But however he learned, he fled. He fled to the east. He fled out of Egypt into the Sinai Peninsula. How did he go? Did he hop on his chariot and take off to the east? Did he ride off on a horse? Well, we don't know. He probably did start out with a vehicle of some sort, probably with a chariot. But as time passed, he probably switched to foot because it was much easier to escape by foot than to leave the track of a chariot behind as he went, and of course to try to provide for a horse or horses in the process. How long did it take him? How many days was this flight as he fled to the east into the land of Midian? Well, we don't know where his flight began. The scripture doesn't say. And, and we're not told exactly where the well was where this account occurred that we just read. But if we assume that he began probably somewhere near the city of Ramses, because the scripture tells us that the Hebrews were building the great treasure or fortress cities of Python and Ramses, <coughs> if we assume that he began near Ramses, and that the well was probably somewhere near the head of the Gulf of Aqaba, he would have fled a distance of about 250 miles as one would have traveled by road. Even fleeing for his life, 250 miles would have taken him probably the better part of a week to cover. Uh, even if he began out on chariot and ended up on foot. Providing he didn't hide out anywhere along the way, feeling that someone was hot on his trail. A week would have been pretty much the minimum time that he would have taken. And of course, we don't know. It could have been much longer that he spent in flight before he reached the well in the land of Midian. What was Moses' plan? What was in his mind? Can you imagine what was in his mind? He was fleeing for his life. What does his future look like to him now? He had been a royal prince in the land. He had been trained and raised to have authority now he was fleeing for his life from that very land in which that could have been a reality. Into the desert, into a, to an unknown future. To what extent was his faith in God so established that he had hope? That God would be with him and God would help him even as he fled into the wilderness there? Well, we don't know. All we know is that he came to this well where certainly he planned to refresh himself, and we're told that he sat down. 
indicating weariness, indicating probably a time of contemplation, where do I go from here? And little did he know that he was about to have a divine appointment. Didn't look very impressive, I'm sure, at first. These seven shepherdesses coming to water their sheep. Who were the Midianites? We're told he fled into the land of Midian. Well, let's backtrack just for a moment uh, to the book of Genesis. In, in the 25th chapter, you may remember if you went through our study in Genesis that after Abraham's wife, Sarah, died, Abraham again married. The scripture tells us, now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. One of the sons of Abraham was Midian. So the Midianites were related to the Israelites. They all had the same patriarch. As Abraham was the grandfather of Israel, so Abraham was the father of Midian. So the Midianites and the Israelites had a common ancestry. Now we remember, I think, when we talked about the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers uh, into the land of Egypt, the scripture tells us there that he was sold to the Midianites and at the same time in that same passage they are also referred to as the Ishmaelites. So the Midianites and the Ishmaelites were so closely related that sometimes the names were used interchangeably. They probably intermarried. Now of course the Ishmaelites were of the same family also. So they were kind of like cousins <coughs> as they intermingled together. But there was a branch of the Midianites, apparently, who did not associate themselves closely with the Ishmaelites and apparently attempted to cling to what they understood of their father Abraham's faith. Whatever they understood of Abraham's God, they endeavored to maintain that understanding. It's possible that their understanding was nearly as good as that of Moses, actually. We're told that there is this man by the name of Rule. His name means friend of God. Interestingly, as you get into the next chapter, he is also called Jethro. Now, when you read the commentaries, you'll see that the commentaries do not agree together as to why this man should have two names. Why should he be Rule and why should he be called Jethro? Uh, some will say, well, it was very common for the Arabs to have more than one name. But I think Josephus is probably a little closer to the truth when he says his name was Rule, friend of God. But he was often referred to as Jethro because Jethro meant chief or preeminent one. And so it's probably a title and his name was Rule. Whatever the case, the two names are used interchangeably for this man. Now notice when he is introduced here uh, in the 16th chapter, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. We're told, first of all, he is a priest. And we find as we go along, he's a priest of El, of God. The God of Abraham, as well as he understood him. But we also discover right off the bat, he had seven daughters. 
Now, quite often when you read about someone's lineage, the daughters are not even mentioned, let alone counted. But here they're specifically mentioned because they play a very significant role in the event which is about to transpire. Now, it implies that he either had no sons or that his sons were too young yet to participate in the job of shepherding. And therefore, the seven daughters were given this difficult task of herding these sheep and of watering them day by day. Now, the task was difficult to begin with, but was made more difficult because apparently every day when they came to water the sheep, other shepherds would stand off in the distance and wait till the gals got the water all drawn. Then they would horn in there and shove the girls away and water their sheep with the work and the labor of the girls. Is this Bedouin chivalry? <laughs> well, whatever it was, they were ganging up on the girls, obviously, pushing them out of the way and exploiting their, their work simply because they were stronger than the ladies. Verse 18 of this passage seems to indicate that this was a daily occurrence because Ruel, when he speaks to the girls when they come back, says, why have you come back so soon today? <laughs> Implying that, yeah, normally you're a lot later because it takes you that much longer to get the, um, the sheep watered. And, and, you know, I'm sure that they told him previously what was going on, but maybe he was too old to do anything about it himself, or maybe he just felt that was one of the problems of life you have to deal with. And as long as the girls weren't actually being harmed, leave it be. Moses, however, wasn't about to let this happen without his interference. Moses was not raised as a Bedouin. Moses, as you know, was raised in the court of Pharaoh. And he was raised with a code of honor. A, a certain code of chivalry. Now, of course, the term chivalry refers to a specific code of honor that began to, to be applied in Europe about the 13th century. And it's the code that we so often think about, the knight in shining armor going out bravely defending the maiden in distress and the church of God and, and being a man of his word and all of this. But if you look at medieval history prior to the application of the code of chivalry, you discover a very different world, a barbaric world, uh, a barbaric world in which uh, might made right and men in iron suits ruled brutally and, and women were often very badly treated. Many of us think only in terms of Arthur, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And we, we fail to realize that the basic chivalric story of Arthur uh, was written in the period of chivalry, but applied to a time when there was no code of chivalry. And therefore, it's, it's, it's not really, in, in its historical setting, it's, it's not a correct story. Uh, the, you know, all the um, compliments are improper to the time period if there ever even was an Arthur, right? But Moses had a sense of honor. He had a code of chivalry. And as he witnessed this, he, he was distressed. But what drove him to action was his hatred of oppression. He had witnessed this in Egypt. That's what had caused him to flare up in rage and kill the Egyptian. That's what led him to flee 
uh, from the country was this, this hatred of oppression. And to him, these girls were being oppressed, whoever they were. They were total strangers to him. They were alien to him. <laughs> he had been raised in the court of Egypt. What did he know about Bedouins who chase sheep around the countryside? Nothing. And yet, he was willing to defend them because of his hatred of exploitation and oppression with strength that had been garnered in Egypt, with training that he had received, physical training, leadership training, probably military training. As I mentioned to you before, uh, Josephus claims that Moses actually led the armies of Egypt against the Ethiopians in mighty victories. Well, whether that was true or not, certainly he was well prepared for combat. And with a sense of outrage stimulating his adrenaline, he drove off the interlopers. Did he do it by simply going up and punching them out? Or did he wield a sword? We don't know. Scripture simply tells us or implies that he drove off these that were trying to exploit the girls. And then not only did he drive them off, but then he helped the girls water the sheep. He drew the water and poured it. Remember, we're talking about a desert here. There's no nice lake to just bring the sheep down to or a nice flowing creek, you know. Uh, no green pastures to lie down beside still waters. This water had to be drawn from a well and poured into dry troughs so the sheep could be watered. It was work. And so Moses did this work and the girls were able to water their sheep on time for a change. And so they returned early. And Rule said, hey, gals, it's good to have you home early, but how come you're home early? Did you forget something? <laughs> Did you bring the sheep? And, of course, they told him the story of what Moses had done. Now, what's interesting is, as you read this uh, passage, they don't say his name. The girls simply say in verse 19, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. What is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. An Egyptian. I, I think that was very unusual to them. They had seen Egyptians before, obviously. They knew what he looked like. They, they knew he looked as an Egyptian. So obviously, uh, Moses was still dressed in Egyptian dress. He had mannerisms of an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian, probably, to them. And so they simply called him an Egyptian. And I'm sure their father was a little taken back and surprised by it all. But you'll notice how he responds. He kind of reprimands the girls, I think, in a, in a gentle way. <laughs> Where is he, daughters? He's helped you and you've just left him out there in the desert by himself. You didn't invite him home for dinner. You didn't extend proper Bedouin hospitality to this man. The Bedouins of that day, even as the Bedouins of this day, are strange people. To us, they seem strange in a way. Obviously, amongst themselves, they don't seem strange. But you know, they're, they're people who, who extend warm hospitality. They, they will reach out and, and uh, minister to the stranger and the alien. And yet, at the same time, hey, they're quick to raid a settlement, uh, slit people's throats, uh, whatever it takes to accomplish their goals. I think in the girls' defense, you have to think that they had been so used to what had been going on, to being abused by these shepherds, to having to wait till the shepherds got their sheep watered, 
and then leaving. You wonder why they didn't just wait. <laughs> of course, maybe the guys, the other shepherds, weren't about to water their sheep until it was getting so late that the girls had to draw the water in order to even get home before dark, whatever was the case. <clears throat> I think that they were so shocked by this deliverance. They must have thought that this Egyptian was an angelic visitation. They were kind of stunned by the whole thing. I think they can be well excused for not even thinking about the fact we better invite this, this man home. Of course, he may have appeared to be far too prominent a person to invite into their Bedouin tent. I mean, after all, certainly Moses was, address, was dressed at the moment that he took off, uh, probably in this royal finery. A little bit dirty by now, probably, with his flight, but still, he may not have looked like a candidate for a Bedouin supper. So Rule sent the daughters back, go back and find him, and uh, straighten out this faux pas. I invite him to dinner. Now that's all he was invited to. He was invited to dinner. Notice what happens when you're invited to dinner. <laughs> invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with a man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to him. <laughs> so he came to dinner. And of course, you know, we can only assume what happened. In the conversation which took place, Moses was discovered to be a man without any particular connections and no place to go. Did he explain all that happened? Well, probably not really at that time, because how could he know that this man would, was trustworthy at this point? I think eventually he might have, but he may have just simply said, hey, I'm, I'm headed east, I'm, I'm tired of living in Egypt, uh, I've got no particular place to go. And so he said, hey, by the way, obviously I need some help here. <laughs> my girls have been pushed around enough. How would you like to become my foreman? How would you like to be responsible for my flocks? Well, think of Moses' situation. He was fleeing from everything he had known for 40 years of his life. He was fleeing from everyone he had known for 40 years in his life. He had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And this opportunity presents itself seemingly out of the clear blue sky. And so, obviously, he accepts the offer. Becoming a Bedouin, trading in his royal robes or whatever he was wearing, for Bedouin garb would sort of be the perfect cover, wouldn't it? If any Egyptian agents were still looking for him, uh, they would never expect him to find him dressed as a Bedouin out herding sheep in the desert. Certainly someone who had been a prince in Egypt would try to lord it somewhere. They had no photographs, you know, to po post on the desert shrub somewhere saying, wanted this man, you know, or there was no fingerprinting, no way to prove who he was. And so it would be a perfect cover for a man such as Moses to become a Bedouin shepherd. I think verse 21 in this passage where it says, And Moses was willing to dwell with a man, and he gave his daughter support to Moses. I, I think that probably covers several years of time. I don't think that night he said, Hey, how, by the way, how would you like to marry my daughter? <laughs> I, I think a little time passed here, and, and a little acquaintanceship took place, and a little trust had to develop before this took place. 
Certainly Moses was old enough to be married because we note that he was approximately 40. And so we have no idea how old the girls were. But uh, <clears throat> strangely enough, there's no implication that any of the seven were married yet. But there's no denial that they were. So they were probably still well within marriageable age. Moses found a kinship here with this priest of El, of God. Which of the seven sisters did he marry? Well, we're told her name was Zipporah. But which of the seven sisters was she? By the way, Zipporah means bird. Now, if you remember the Leah-Rachel episode, by implication, we can assume that Zipporah may have been the eldest of the seven, at least the eldest of the seven who were not yet married, if any of them had already been married. The scripture tells us, then, that sometime later, there's no statement of the passage of time, it's implied here, that she gave birth to a boy. And Moses named him Gershom, meaning one driven out, a stranger. Here's my son, stranger, in commemoration of his own flight from Egypt, his alien status in Midian. This is not my home, I'm just passing through. That was Abraham's sort of his life story, and Isaac and Jacob, and so it would be for Moses. Moses was a recipient of the promise, yet Moses never, as far as we know, ever set foot in the promised land. Verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Obviously, when you read a passage like that, we can assume that God had kind of forgotten them, was off doing something else, and, and oh, my goodness, I forgot about those people. Uh, you know, that's obviously not true. The omnipotent God never forgets. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. But from the perspective of Moses, as he paints this picture, it looks as if God suddenly or finally remembered his people, but they were chief in his mind all along. And God's plan was being fulfilled because he, would, he said that they would be in the land for 400 years, oppressed, until the iniquity of the Amorite was full. That is, until the Canaanites in the land had been given opportunity to change, to worship God, and if not, then to be destroyed by the coming of Israel. The Pharaoh, who had sought Moses' life, has died. Now, in that we could imply, if Josephus was right, that Moses should have been the man to succeed him. But obviously, God had bigger plans for Moses than simply to be Pharaoh of Egypt. Nothing changed for the Israelites. I'm sure they thought whenever a pharaoh died that maybe the next pharaoh who came to power would be more lenient, more kind, more understanding. But that wasn't to be so. The oppression continued. 
And the scripture tells us that the, that the Israelites cried out to God. They had not forgotten God. The extent to which they understood Him, the extent to which each individual believed in God, we're not told. But we are told that they cried out to God. Did God hear them? Was their prayer reaching the heavens? In Deuteronomy chapter 26, Moses is recounting. In chapter 26, reading verses 6 and 7, And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And then, of course, goes on to tell that Israel was delivered by God's mighty hand through the Red Sea. You could, by simply reading this passage in Exodus, think that, uh, well, God was busy and finally uh, he decided to take notice of them again and he decided, oh, you know, I better do something about these poor people in the land. But, of course, God had been preparing an answer long before this cry ever came up to him. God's answer had been in preparation for unto 80 years. At least by the time we get to the second verse of the second, third chapter of Exodus. You probably remember the words of Isaiah when he spoke and said, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God knows our hearts and God knows our needs before we ever vocalize them to Him or pray them in our minds. But He nevertheless requires that we do that. If we just assume, well, God knows everything, so I don't need to worry. He'll just take care of it when He wants to and we don't bother with prayer. We, we fail to do what God has commanded us to do. And that is to intercede for one another, to pray for one another. And as these Israelites cried out to God, God heard their prayers, but God knew their prayers long before they were ever prayed. And God's answer was already in the works before they ever prayed. God's timetable, however, is not always our timetable. We say, God, I would like for you to do this now. <laughs> because if you don't, these will be the consequences, as if God doesn't know the consequences. But God has his own timetable. And one of the things he tries to teach us through prayer is patience. <coughs> Faith and patience. We pray. We commit it to God. We ask him to do what we want him to do. And then we say, oh God, I believe you. And in your time, you will do what you wish to do in answer to our prayer. And our faith needs to be that he hears us. If we are God's children, he hears our prayer. And he does answer. Sometimes those answers come far later than we expected. And yet, the answer does come. It's very interesting. I had this passage in Revelation to read to you, and I will read it. But this morning, Lois and I were again, as we were getting ready, uh, listening to Erwin Lutzer, and he read the same passage. I thought, hmm, 
Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. We don't see the program of God in its individual detail. We see the general program as God has revealed it in the Word of God. But we don't see the individual things God wants to do. And the Scripture clearly teaches us that God is a God of justice. And God will avenge His people. But He may not do it today or tomorrow. He may do it a century or more later. He will do it in His time. According to His great program. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't cry out for His justice. And that He will avenge His people. Even as these under the altar... Those who had been slain, apparently, during the tribulation are crying out to the Lord to avenge their blood. And God says, I will, I will, but not yet. Because the rest of those to be brought in and complete the number have not yet been brought in. I will do it, but I will do it according to my timetable. God brings justice. You know, as we are constantly battered, if we watch any news anyway, by this ongoing trial of O.J. Simpson, we think, will the truth ever be known? Well, maybe not here and now, but one day before the judgment seat of God, there will not be a trial. There will be no lawyers, no defense, no prosecutors. There will only be the open book where God says this is what happened and this is the result and no one can deny it. And of course, that's our ultimate hope. Of course, it doesn't always do a lot of good for our sense of vengeance here and now, or justice here and now. But that's our ultimate hope, that justice will prevail. And for those of us who believe in a, in a literal millennial reign of Christ, we know that there will be a period of time when justice will prevail over the earth, literally. In the third chapter of Exodus, I'd like to read the first verse. In this next two chapters, we, we switch gears, and now we move Moses uh, from his position as prince in Egypt to his role of shepherd in Midian. This goes into the second 40-year phase of his life. In the third chapter, the first verse we read, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. These second 40 years could not have been in greater contrast to the first 40 years. To live in royalty and power with all the accoutrements that went along with it and now to be chasing a bunch of sheep through the desert by himself. Second 40 years were so different from the first 40 years. Sometimes we don't realize why God brings a major change in our lives. Sometimes we think God has 
forgotten us or condemned us because suddenly a radical change takes place in our life and, and maybe our lifestyle is, is cut down a few pegs from what it was before. And sometimes it's because we need our turn in the desert, as it were. No longer is he living in a palace or training for the, royal of, for, for the role of leadership. He's now living in tents. And he is now performing what has historically been considered one of the lowliest tasks. Task of herding sheep. It's a very low prestige job. Then as well as now. Maybe even a little more now, I don't know. I've, I've read articles on shepherding, modern shepherding, and uh, the job is still looked down upon by most. The actual job of being the shepherd out with the sheep. Many key people consider anyone who's willing to actually herd sheep as being a strange person. Something must be wrong with this person if they want to go out there and actually spend weeks and months alone with sheep. Some actually consider a shepherd to be not much better than the animals he herds. But that's obviously a biased position, probably from someone who's never herded sheep. But there's no doubt about the fact it's a lonely job. From our perspective, a boring job. Of course, we have to realize in those days, people didn't have all these other attractions to make something boring. You know, something's boring simply because we choose to make it boring, right? We, we can make anything exciting if, if that's our choice. But looking at it from our perspective, we'd say, for weeks and weeks pushing sheep through the desert with nobody to talk to but the sheep? I read an article in one of the Christian magazines about one of the pastors in Southern California. He said he just loved once a year to spend a few days out in the desert all by himself. And he'd walk through the canyons and he would pray at the top of his voice and sing at the top of his voice and know there was nobody to hear him but God. And he could just let it all out without feeling like anybody's going to badmouth him or think ill of him or say, you got a terrible voice, why are you singing? You know, it was a catharsis for him. Of course, 40 years is a bit of a long catharsis, but nevertheless, apparently, that's what Moses needed. Talk to God, talk to yourself, talk to the sheep. <laughs> Being as God normally doesn't respond audibly, the only human voice you'd actually hear would be your own through most of that time. Sheep not being real good communicators. But it was a wonderful training for Moses. He had spent years amongst arrogant men and women, royal princes and princesses, and high officials of the land, all parading around in their finery, and, and displaying the arrogance of power in the most powerful land and the most wealthy land of that day. Egypt was a rich land. Egypt was one of the earliest major sources of gold in world history. And the Egyptians were proud of their civilization. And as we study back through their civilization, if you look at it purely from a human point of view, they had much to be proud about. But he had been immersed in this immersed in, in, in what we would call humanism. Oh, sure, there was a religiosity to it. They had their gods and goddesses, but, you know, I, I'm just really convinced that if we have people today who think, well, I'm a Christian, but a lot of that Christian stuff's pretty silly. 
You can imagine what people thought wandering around in Egypt, thinking about the gods and goddesses of Egypt. And uh, probably they paid open obeisance to them, but in their own minds and in their own private, they thought the whole thing was stupid and ridiculous, you know, to worship this dumb statue and to think that this crocodile could actually be a god, you know. So there was this, this, this all-encompassing humanistic attitude that was there. And Moses had been, ex had been brought up into it. He couldn't help but be tainted by it. And, and, and to have learned a certain measure of self-reliance. And all this has got to be purged away. One of the things God will do for each of us if we're going to be used by Him is to take away from us our reliance on our human ability. Because whenever we apply, uh, rely on our own ability, God can't work. It's, you know, it's the pastor who's blessed with, uh, with a uh, golden voice, if you will, and with a brilliant way of presenting things who trusts in his own ability who, sure, he may have a following, but not of people committed to the living God. It's the one who becomes broken and realizes that he or she in, in himself or herself has no ability except to be given by God and used by God that can then be God's true servant. And that's what Moses has to go through. He's been trained all wrong for 40 years. Now God has to shear that all away and retrain him. And most of us would say, walking around in the desert chasing sheep doesn't seem like a very good school. But it can be a wonderful school. One thing, though, that needs to be said to Moses' credit in the midst of all this, and Spurgeon, in uh, one of his devotionals, says this, referring to this passage, he pointed out that it is a tribute to Moses' character that he was willing to push sheep through the desert. After being educated in the finest schools and, and probably being one of the most learned men of all history and, and having pomp and royalty and power and wealth to be willing literally to give it all up to simply herd sheep in the wilderness was a statement of the great character of this man. And in a, in a very small way, it's a little bit of an example of what Jesus did to step down from, from the, if you will, the throne of heaven to become a man. And not only a man, a, a man who was born in Bethlehem of a virgin, in a, amongst a people who were hated by other peoples. Of course, the, the, the difference for Jesus was far greater. But nevertheless, in some ways, Moses was a little bit of a type of Christ in this. Humbling himself and learning servanthood. Moses' spirit, his mind and his heart were being purged of the confidence in human ability. That's something we really have to wrestle with ourselves individually. To know where the line is between human ability and God's sufficiency. And know that if God has talented us, that's wonderful. But if we rest and trust in that talent, we're not going to accomplish anything for eternal good. It's only when that's given to God and returned by God and used by God and blessed by God that it actually is effective. And of course, then it's not our talent anyway. It's God's who works through us. It's God who works 
in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The allurements of 40 years had to be worked off by 40 more years of solitude. You could almost say for every year he was trained in Egypt, he had to have a year with the sheep in the desert, with God in the desert, wandering from waterhole to waterhole through a vast, harsh, overwhelming wilderness. I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the context of this class or not, but there's a man, I've forgotten his name now, but he wrote a, an account of what it's like to, to go out into the desert. And uh, he was in North Africa in the Sahara, and he said they were out, they were doing biology work out in the desert. And he decided one morning to get up and to just walk off for some solitude by himself. And he said, and we walked five miles because the ground had a slight slope to it, he lost all vision of the camp. And as he stopped there in the midst of the desert and, and stood, the sky was absolutely cloudless. There was not a cloud in the sky. There was no wind blowing. And he stood there in absolute silence. Then, and he said all of a sudden his heart began to overwhelm him. Boom, boom, boom. You could hear his heart beating within him because there was absolutely no other sound. And as he looked around, he was completely alone. The, the whole surface of the desert was featureless. There were no rocks or bushes or anything else. It was just a basically featureless, rocky surface, just little tiny pebbles. And the only way he even knew which direction he'd come from was he could see a few of his footsteps across through the desert. So it was the most alone and frightening experience he'd ever had. Of course, this man wasn't a Christian, but you know, you think about that and, and you relate that to Moses. Out there where for weeks on end he saw nobody. There are some people who cannot stand to be away from human sound for five minutes. Everywhere they go, they got to have earphones on or they got to turn the radio on because they can't stand to be alone with themselves. And here Moses was with nothing but sheep. And sheep have a pretty monotonous uh, conversation. You know, bah, bah. Uh, you know, once you've heard it a few times, you pretty well have it down. And so it was great opportunity for this man to learn probably the truth to some extent of a later famous shepherd who wrote these words in the Psalms. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Until we come to that point where we can pray and think as David thought and prayed, we're probably not very useful to God. Who am I that you should pay any attention to me? We live in a world where we, we elevate people and we think, like I was, where was I, I was reading this, uh, talking about we even want to know what the stars eat and what underwear they wear and, and things like that, you know, as if it matters. We're stupid when it comes to chasing after these famous people. I mean, so like some have said, they put their feet in their pants one leg at a time just like anybody else. They're, nobody, they're, they're no different. And we've got to come to this place where we say, well, who am I that you are mindful of me? And when we truly arrive at that place, then God can begin to work in us and use us.
because we then know that but for Christ we're nothing but with Christ we are everything we have all power to work his will as he would work it through us next week we'll we'll talk about the burning bush experience because this is a a profound th this is the most profound experience in Moses entire life more profound than raising his staff and watching the Red Sea part and feeding the millions with manna from heaven. God, of course, did that, but under Moses' leadership. Greater than that was this little private encounter with God in a burning bush. Probably no kind of magnificent bush at all, just probably an average, common, ordinary thorn bush. And yet in it, he would have this profound experience.